Welcome to the second episode of Movie Maker Interviews, where we talk with our greatest actors, writers, and directors about the art and craft of making movies. I'm your host, Tim Malloy, and this week we have some guests whose names you are probably going to see in this year's Oscar nominations. Our first guest is Daniel Kaluuya. He's already been nominated for Best Actor for his lead role in Get Out, and he was one of the stars of the groundbreaking blockbuster Black Panther. Now he and Jodie Turner-Smith star in Queen and Slim, which opens next week. I talked to him before I'd seen Queen and Slim, and now that I have, I want to strongly recommend it. Don't worry, this interview doesn't give too much away. After Daniel Kaluuya, I talked with Noah Harpster and Micah Fitzerman Blue, the screenwriters of the new Mr. Rogers film, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, and Tom Juneau, whose profile of Mr. Rogers for Esquire magazine two decades ago helped inspire the film. We'll talk more about A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood after my talk with Daniel Kaluuya. A quick note. Due to a really boring technical issue you don't want to hear about, the audio is not great for the first minute of the interview, but it improves dramatically after the first minute. So please bear with me, and here's Daniel Kaluuya. We start out talking about how he met Lena Waithe, the writer of Queen and Slim, and eventually met the director, Melina Matsukas. My understanding of Queen and Slim is that you met Lena Waithe at a screening of Get Out? Yes. Heard about this project? And said, "I want to play Slim." No, yes, yeah, no, yeah. Hmm. But I saw her at this Get Out screen. It was actually Chance the Rapper screen, hmm. and then I literally went up to her because I had read an episode of The Shy, which hadn't been made yet. And I was like, "Oh, I think you're really amazing." And then um, she's like, "Oh, cheers!" And then she mentioned this thing, like about this this Bonnie and Clyde story. And then um, I was like, "All right, cool. That sounds wicked." Whatever. And then we we met up. A few months later, it's actually the day before Comic Con, Black Panther, mm. and then like, and then we sat down, and then she described the first twelve minutes, mm. and I got very excited, and I was like, "That sounds amazing." What I liked about it, it just wasn't one sided. It wasn't didn't feel like the beats were preachy, and then um, then she sent me the script, and I read it the next day. No, no, Black Panther. Then I got, I had a good time at Comic Con. So I didn't read it then. <laughs> but then when I was more less um, sober, more sober, I I then read it. And then um, then I was just in this weird place in life when I was just like, I trying to like cancel out my Britishness. Because you know in Britain, yeah, they go, oh, I want to do this. But no worries if not. <laughs> like, oh, no, no, don't worry. No, it's fine. It's fine. And I was just like, I want to do it. Yeah. Like I just felt in my gut, like, I want to do this. Don't try and apologize for it. Don't try and don't try to tell her what to do. Just go, this is what I want. Um, does it? And then she was like, oh, it's, it's really nice of you to say that. We're going to talk to Melina and see if, because Melina hadn't read it then. Mm. So I think I was the first person to read it. So it was the first draft. And then um, Melina read it. I sat down with Melina and I was like, I think it's amazing. I want to read it. And then, but we kind of just connected on a real level. Yeah. And then she said, um, it'd be cool if you was to do it. And then it took a long while. And then for me, it's like, in those kind of processes, I don't want to feel, I don't want to intrude in their process. So I just said I want to do it. And if they said they didn't want me to do it, then they, that's their decision. Do you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. but I felt like, and I, I, I'm trying to, I think I'm kind of sane. So I think if I say that, I think it's because I'm right for it, not because I need it for a career thing. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's because I identified with it and it's something that spoke to me. What did you identify with? What did you like about this character? Uh, I just felt he was an everyman. Yeah. He was just an every, every guy that was dating, like, you know what I mean? It was like this every man and this every woman that's dating. Just to even talk about 
and I know it talks about it very briefly, to even talk about dating, yeah, like in this modern age in cinema, is just it's, that's really exciting to me. Um, and then, uh, and then, and then, what happened with the police is something that's that's I've experienced. And then the love story, the love story element was really, it really, it really spoke to me, and I, I wanted to see it. I, I wanted to, see, I would watch it if I was working at a bank. I'd watch this film. <laughs> that's how I kind of judge a lot of stuff that I do. And it's not exactly Bonnie and Clyde because Bonnie and Clyde set out to be criminals, and these two people just set out to go on a date. Yeah, and then have an interaction with police that goes. You said you've had interactions like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have. I've have had interactions where I've 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 had to uh, been stopped and searched many times back home and got into certain situations. And but it's not. But that's that's what's interesting because it's. I mean, if we're being very blunt, yeah, yeah narratively, it's more Thelma and Louise mm -hmm. because something happens mm -hmm. and they have to go on the run because that deed happened that spoke to their experience as individuals. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So in Thelma Louise's story, it's the fact that the, the oppression of women and then like she was navigating a certain situation and that situation happened. And in in some sort of defense, a death happens. So it's kind of like that, but I but in what's interesting about the Bonnie and Clydeness of it and the projection of it, it kind of for me, I think it speaks to um when you are black, you don't have to do criminal things to be seen as criminals, do you know what I'm saying? Right. Like in that sense, you don't have to continue doing crime in right. order to be seen as these bandits. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? And it's just like, it's just a collection. The, what's that, the Bonnie and Clyde narrative of Queen and Slim is very interesting too, the fact that like, it's what the characters are actually going through is this projection yeah. of they are icons, they are this, they are that, they are they mean this to me, they mean that to me, they mean that to me. When they're just two people trying to figure out life yeah. and fall in love. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? And that's what I found really um, interesting about it because they, they, they remain that. As individuals, you go on that journey. They don't actually become these kind of people that start doing speeches. Right. They're just people that are trying to get by and trying to survive because, yeah. of, the, because of the projection that society puts on them. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? Surviving becomes harder. You said that this character isn't like a really hyper stereotypically masculine character. He's just like a regular guy who is, she's kind of in the lead, right? Yeah, he's like, I mean, he, I, mean, I don't know how much we can say, we can say that, it's in the first 12 minutes. Like he, he pulled the trigger yeah. and she comes up with a plan and he's in shell shock. And also he's navigating a lot of like, um, Christianity is a huge theme in this film. Mm. And so he's navigating a lot of his guilt. Mm. You know what I'm saying? A lot of guilt, like thou shalt not kill. So he's like, and that sometimes it leave if you have led your life feeling like this is right, this is wrong, this is black, this is white, when it actually is blurry, yeah, you're going through your emotions, you're going through, you don't know what's what, you know, and, and it can paralyze people. It can paralyze the people to in to a space of indecision. Yeah. And so he's like, and you don't see a lot of those black male characters that are in a place where I don't know what to do next. I don't know. I don't know. And actually it's a real thing where like a lot of the women take the, the lead. Yeah. It's something that you saw in Black Panther a lot, where a lot of, I find a lot of African families are matriarch, do you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? It's like the women take the lead and the women make the decision. They run the, they run the home, they run the family. And, um, and, and so that's what it kind of, kind of swims in. Yeah, it's interesting that he is taken in this direction. You know, he does pull the trigger, but he pulls the trigger because this police officer sort of forces him into that position by 
attacking the woman he's on a date with. Yeah. And I think this police officer has this stereotype in his mind of like, this is a young black man, he's threatening. But the thing that your character has done that is supposedly threatening is not signal a turn. Yeah. I mean, he has all of this stuff in his mind, this stereotype built up in his mind that your character completely defies and has nothing to do with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you hope people take away from this one? This film? Yeah. I hope they just take away, take it away. <laughs> like anything. No, but like anything, I hope you own it. I hope you want to own it. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, I can't tell you what to think. I can't tell. What you think is just who you are. Yeah. So if you want to own it, if you want to take it and want to make it yours, that's a, that is the, the biggest compliment. I don't, I, it's, we've done our job. Like, I think it's still ours now because it's not out. But we've done our job and then it goes out there and now it's yours. And you need to figure out what you, how you feel about it. And, and I kind of, I'm very much of the camp where like, I step out of the debate. It's more interesting to me than I, I know what I think. So, yeah. so I, and I don't, and I think the whole point of storytelling and cinema is to kind of like present it and then have that, those conversations. I actually had that just now. I was in the airport and when I go into TSA, it's always crazy. So I like sitting there and talking to this guy. And he used to talk about Get Out, this white guy. And he said he had, his, he had his black friend and he sat down and spoke to him about Get Out and spoke to him about the themes and this and that and that. And he said, I would never have seen it. You know hmm. what I'm saying? And it's like, I wouldn't have seen it from my perspective. And he said, oh, so thank God you're here because I, I didn't understand those elements. But I actually, he can, it worked as a horror film. Yeah. But also there's another layer to it. And because of he's open and because he's like around people that like, like he's honest, like he's around people that are honest to him, and say, listen, you probably have some blind spots. Yeah. And then they had that conversation, and that was for him. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know how to take, but like, that's what is that's what I find a really exciting thing about film. Yeah. Is that it's it's everyone's, you know what I'm saying? There's kind of this false fight going on now between the MCU and cinema, which yeah. is maybe not a real fight. Yeah. Um, but you've managed to navigate both really well. And I think you've used the fame that you've gotten from movies like Get Out and from the Marvel Universe to do smaller films, to get smaller films, maybe even greenlit. Mm. I mean, I think you probably helped get this made mm. by, by just being in it. Mm. I never in my life thought there would be a biopic of Fred Hampton, which mm. is your next movie. Yeah. Has that been a conscious decision? Uh, yes. Yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that, like, I want to watch Black Panther. Yeah. <laughs> like, and Get Out just happened. That wasn't supposed to be, like, a... Wait, I'm a like I'm like Black Panther. Like, alright, it's Marvel. Like, more likely they're gonna be here. But black, so, so in the sense that like um, I uh, I enjoy cinema that reflects. I think now cinema that reflects real life is actually escapism. Yeah. If you see your world is actually escapism because there's so much in the world in the world. There's so much of that 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 becomes the normal world when you go into a cinema. Yeah. So then when you see yourself or stuff around you or another perspective, I don't know, like if you see the Philippines, yeah, that is now like escapism to me. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, I don't have to go to Uranus. Like yeah. that is not, it's actually great. But like, what is this like, what is this like, I don't like, you don't have to go out to another galaxy anymore. Now it's like just the other country because the media is, the media films to me, no matter what the, the station feels very authored. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Very one. And it goes, oh, I want to hear what I think. Mm -hmm. Let me hear what I think. And then a similar way it goes, this is, what this is what someone else thinks. This is what someone else thinks. This is what you can go into these stories. And yeah. So I, I don't, I don't, yeah, this whole MCU cinema thing, 
I don't know. So it depends on how you see things. I don't know. I just want to make. I just want people to have a good time. I like them both. I mean, I love Black Panther. I love the Avengers movies. Yeah, like I find it fun, man. Like that was fun to me. Like I've gone to, I've gone and watched. Listen, this is the thing as well. What changed my life? I remember I watched. I went to. I got family in Uganda, so I went to Uganda. I watch films there. I watch Moneyball there. They don't understand it. Mm. <laughs> don't get it. They don't, it's not. It's not. It's not that like Fast and Furious. They love it. Yeah. These are my cousins. Like I'm sitting there watching. I understand it a different. Like it's not. There's different things for different things. It's like there's there's hip hop and there's indie. There's like yeah. It's like you don't have to. You don't have to choose. That's not music. That's not music. That's <laughs> not. It's like. I I understand what people think and and that's but that's it. That's just what people think. I do need to ask where your character was during the last two Avengers movies because. I think that was one of the only complaints that people had is that you weren't there. Oh, nah. I don't think that's a complaint. Uh, I, 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 um, I don't know where he was. I don't know. <laughs> Having a mojito. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you mentioned Uranus. You mentioned other galaxies. My theory is Atlantis. Uh, yeah. Have you heard this theory? Have you been reading Reddit threads or anything like that? No, I have not been reading Reddit threads. So, so no one's pulled you aside and said, next movie, Black Panther 2, you'll be in Atlantis. Uh, no, no, okay. one, no, 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 no one's, uh, <laughs> no one's, uh, uh, Ryan has not pulled me aside and said Atlantis, no. But you're up for Black Panther 2. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I enjoy Black Panther a lot yeah. and I love the people on it and I love the fact that Ryan's doing it. It's amazing. And if they, if they called, they called. Yeah. So. And the Fred Hampton biography, um, what made you want to do that? People, the people, their values, their reasons, their values and their reasons. Shaka, the director, is a good guy. Yeah. He's a good guy and reason why he wanted to do it. Ryan's a good guy, reason why he wanted to do it. Charles King um, at Macro, they're good guys. Like they're, they're activists. They're actually doing stuff in the community. That's how they met. Yeah. Like, like going into local communities, doing stuff. So, And then I read the script and I was like, his ideas and his point of view and what he did is so out there that it... If someone did that now, they'd almost get cancelled. Yeah. They'd always get cancelled doing the stuff that he did. Because he, he would go to racist white people in Chicago and go, listen, we've got more in common than they would have us believe. Let's come together and like help our communities. Do you know what I'm That's like, what? Yeah. I mean, it's like, he's like, and you don't know about that, about the Black Panthers. And I, and I just thought the ideas and the, and the concepts are so ahead of now. I was just like, I just want to learn this. I want to learn all this stuff. I, like, I want to know about this world and about all, about these, like you, you'd see the, I don't want to have what society's told me who the Black Panthers are. I want to have my own opinion. And yeah, so it's been amazing to, to learn the amount we learn. And yeah, it's just, it just felt like it meant something. And I felt like the reasons they were, they were doing it, I really liked them. There you have it, Daniel Kaluuya talking about Queen and Slim, Marvel's Black Panther, and Ryan Coogler, Charles D. King, and Chaka King's upcoming film about real-life Black Panther, Fred Hampton. Queen and Slim is in theaters November 27th. And now we turn to a beautiful day in the neighborhood. I was lucky enough to talk with not just the film's screenwriters, Noah Harpster and Michael Fitzerman Blue, but also Tom Juno, whose character inspires Matthew Reese's character in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, a fictional Esquire journalist, named Lloyd Vogel. The parts in the movie where Tom Hanks, as Mr. Rogers, talks to the camera are pure bliss. But as Harpster and Fitzerman Blue are quick to point out, Mr. Rogers is not the lead character. 
The film is in theaters November 22nd. In this interview, you'll hear Noah Harpster answer the first question, then Tom Juno and Micah Fitzman Blue handling the second. So, Micah and Noah, you guys have a wonderful piece in the new Movie Maker magazine where you talk about how you go about writing a biopic like this. And one thing you say is you have to figure out what your character wants. So, what did you decide Mr. Rogers really wants? Um, well, I mean, in, in our case, Mr. Rogers is not the lead of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's really uh, Lloyd Vogel. It's a character loosely based on Tom Juno. Um, but I think, uh, I think what Fred Rogers wanted was um, nothing short of changing the world. I mean, he was asked, I mean, it sounds silly to say out loud, but he was asked sort of later in his life, what, what do you hope to have accomplished in your life? And he said, uh, I hope that I will have given children positive ways to deal with their negative feelings. And that's amazing. To be able to, one, answer that question without even thinking about it and just know at the end of your life, this is what I ha- want to have accomplished with my life. And then to answer it in such a profound and specific way. Um, I was incredibly moved by that, and, I th- and, and we put a version of that in the movie as well. One thing we talk a lot about today is the idea of toxic masculinity, which seems to have a lot of overlap with just anger and badly misplaced anger. What did Mr. Rogers have to say about anger and coping with anger? And Tom, this is a question for you too, because you spent so much time with him to write the article that you did for Esquire. Yeah, so the, uh, the, I mean, the, in the article that I wrote about Fred in, in 1998, there really was, there really was no backstory mentioned. It's all, it's all in the moment with, with Fred. Um, the, the backstory um, in the movie, though, is pretty close, I would say, to the backstory um, in life, which was that I had a, you know, a, a complicated dad and a complicated relationship with that complicated dad. And, and Fred definitely, well, so my father had ex- extremely specific ideas of what manhood meant and what it entailed and what you had to do in order to be a man. And it was like the exact opposite of Fred. And, and really that, what, the, what the story meant to me back then is that he, Fred allowed me to choose a different way of, of being a man, which is, um, you know, still um, a very important thing to me and to other people. So, I think toxic masculinity as a term can feel kind of alienating. Um, so even putting that aside, I think that when, uh, when you're little yeah. and they're passing out emotions yeah. <laughs> that you can feel, um, I think that as a society, we allow for uh, girls to get the big 64 color box of crayons um, of emotions. And, uh, and for boys, you kind of get anger. Anger becomes sort of like the, uh, the omnibus emotion that you're allowed to have. Um, one of my favorite musicians, Jonathan Richmond, says that anger is the emotion for people who hate emotion. And, uh, and what Fred Rogers stood for was allowing us uh, as children and also the children within us as adults to tap into all of those other emotions. And I think for, for, for Noah and I, certainly it has informed the way that we are fathers to our children. Um, the instinct always 
when, you know, when my daughter is crying is for me to say, don't cry, just don't cry. Um, and what Fred Rogers um, w was able to sort of help condition certainly me um, into 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 doing it is saying is to is to say uh, it's to sort of create a place a safe place for um, for my daughter's emotions. So it's not about not crying. It's about can you feel safe with yourself and your feelings, um, and can I as a parent provide that safe space for you? In our movie, we tried to accomplish something similar. We wanted to allow our movie to be a container for um, for emotion and for and for. Uh, a character who has an incredibly difficult time forgiving their father. And because of that, all these other things in, in his life are, are broken. Um, how he relates to his own child, how he relates to his wife, um, how he interacts professionally in the world. Um, all those things are sort of given this sort of cosmic chiropractic adjustment by Fred Rogers. And to follow up on what Tom said about the Lloyd Vogel character paralleling his life in some ways, how much is the Lloyd Vogel character, Tom, do you know? Plot-wise, there's a lot of departures. Um, you know, my mom uh, did not die young. She outlasted my dad. Um, I never got into a fight with my dad at my sister's wedding. My sister didn't have a wedding. Um, so, there's a lot of, so there's a lot of differences. Um, but when I saw the movie for the first time uh, back in July, I sort of went in expecting, you know, telling myself, oh, this isn't, this isn't me. And then, I, you know, I walked in there and... Um, you know, the essence of what happened was there. Um, and the essence of what happened is that, you know, Fred saw something in me and wanted to bring it out and, and work to bring it out. And that's what the movie is about to me. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's all right there. Yeah, and I think your, your audience are filmmakers. Um, and um, I think people will understand what it means to take a life uh, and condense it into uh, an, you know, an, an hour and 45 minutes um, and, and what you sort of have to do to, um, to honor the structure of, of a movie. Um, for us, for, for Noah and I, it is about capturing the essence of, of a person and their relationships and how they, how they um, exist in the world um, and using that as sort of the nucleus for our, our narrative structure. And for us, it was also incredibly important for us, for, to, for our audience to be able to spend time with Fred Rogers, which is why we sort of framed the whole movie as an episode of Mr. Rogers that's for grownups, uh, uh, where the episode is about the, the quote unquote, the Tom Juno character. One of my favorite points that you've made is that in screenwriting, you need a protagonist who has an arc. And Mr. Rogers is, you know, such a wonderful guy throughout his entire life there isn't really an arc. You need somebody who can grow and change. Yeah, exactly. I think we realized that pretty quickly. Like it, within you know, the first week of researching and talking to people, uh, the response we got was, Fred was the same person on screen as he was off screen, and that person was awesome. <laughs> and you spent about 10 years researching this and working on this. When did you realize that Tom's Esquire story was going to be your way in? Sure. So early on, we, of course, we'd read the article and were fans of Tom's writing. And then, you know, sort of later, as we were in conversation with the estate and Fred Rogers' widow, they sort of uh, opened up the archives to us, which is a real place in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, where you, uh, you can, they have all of Fred's letters and puppets and all kinds of memorabilia, but also like the intimate uh, sort of personal correspondence 
Um, it's all categorized. And we got a Tom Juno box. And uh, we started reading and realized pretty quickly that there was so much more um, to this story, that they, their friendship and their relationship and Fred's work with Tom went on many years up until you know he died in 2003. Yeah, I talked, I, I mean, the last time I talked to Fred was two months before he died. I talked to, I, I called him on Christmas Day 2002. And up to that time, I mean, and I found, uh, independent of, of the box, I, I found this summer a, uh, a bunch of my correspondence with Fred on an, on an old computer. And it was, it, was a, it was a correspondence. It was a back and forth. And, you know, I asked Fred big questions, and he gave me, and he gave me big answers. And it was, um, I, you know, I read those letters, and I, was, I, was, you know, I, hadn't seen him in, I hadn't seen him in 20 years. And I was just, I was just overwhelmed by, uh, by their power and by their wisdom. I mean, Fred is, I mean, he was just a, he was a remarkable uh, man, but he was also a remarkable correspondent. He's also a beautiful writer. Yeah, he's a beautiful, beautiful writer. Is there anything you think you regretted? That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, great, that's a great question. I mean, I don't, I don't think that there's anything that he regretted then. I mean, but, I, but I, you know, listen, I think every, every, every human being has regrets. I mean, I think that the, that the interesting question for me is what he would make of where we are now, mm-hmm. you know, and, and where, you know, did his, did his lessons take? Because, you know, the environment right now uh, was so different, you know, and he was, he was very, very much out to change media. He, I think he came into, into his job as a reformer. And the, and the, the, the question is, is whether his reforms took. And I think, that that's a, I think that's an open question. I think it's an ongoing question. He did say uh, later in life that he, he would never be allowed to create the program now. And that it was something he thinks about a lot. That in this, in, and this was, you know, in the early 2000s, that he was saying that like I wouldn't be able to do my show now if I started. I wouldn't be able to. So I often wonder what yeah. what he would do. Like would he right. would he have what, been? What would Fred, what yeah. would Fred be doing now? It's I mean it's 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 a big it's a big question. I have a, a story uh, coming out in the Atlantic about Fred, and that's the that's the question I take on. Do you reach a conclusion? I mean, would he be disillusioned by everything happening now? I think that Fred. I think that Fred was a fighter. I mean, I think that you know. I think that there's a reason that, that like a lot of like the you know the the ridiculous internet um, uh, exaggeration of Fred was that he was a uh, you know a Navy SEAL because I think that I think that, I mean which is I mean it's utterly untrue. But at the same time, I, I I do believe that he was something of a warrior, and I do believe he was I mean the most soft spoken of warriors. But I mean I think that I think that he was a fighter, and I and I do not think he would have he would have given up or given in. Well, and he was also an ordained Presbyterian minister, and and as such, I think he was someone who was willing to wrestle with the issues of the day, the fears of the day, the ways in which the world was imperfect. You know, when he, when he was working, when he and when he was alive. I mean, he 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 did uh, episodes about um, assassination, um, and Lord knows we had some um, when he was uh, making his show. Um, he talked about um, death and divorce and issues that I think that we as, um, as, an, as an audience in 2019, it might make us feel a little squeamish um, to imagine someone making a TV show for little kids about such issues. Um, but he was unflinching in this. It took us 10 years to get this, uh, this movie made. Um, 
And, you know, in all this time, uh, we felt like we were waiting for this moment. Um, and recently, I think we've all begun to feel like maybe this moment was waiting for Fred Rogers. Yeah, well, now it turns out, you know, you know, the, we, we need him. I mean, people, people, I mean, some people I think still think of him as a, you know, as a, gee, he was a, a kid's TV show host. But it turns out that, that he was the guy that we needed all along. If I could ask Noah and Micah a little bit about how you actually brought this to the screen, did you have the rights to the story when you started writing it? No, we did not. So you just started writing based on Tom's amazing article in Esquire, which you can still read now online, of course. You guys dove in and hoped that from a legal sense it would work out. Yeah, we, you know, we, uh, 10 years ago, uh, Noah had a, a stubborn toddler um, who wasn't listening to a, a thing he was saying. He threw some Mr. Rogers on YouTube, and all of a sudden she was uh, listening to this uh, to this man speak in a way that he it, 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 that she never ever listened to him. And so Noah came into our office, by which I mean a coffee shop, and uh, and said, "We have to write about this person. He's a warlock, and he speaks toddler." And so Noah and I began to research and kick around ideas about how to tell a Mr. Rogers story uh, as a movie. Um, and, in, and in the course of our research, we, qu we quickly realized that Fred Rogers was not the ideal subject for a conventional biopic, that we had to find some other angle, some other way in to the story. Um, and we, 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 we picked a version. We wrote a draft. This is before, even before we met Tom. And then uh, that draft uh, got some attention enough for us to um, attach some directors, uh, 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 producers who are, st who are still with us and went f sort of end-to-end uh, -end with this, um, Yuri Henley, Peter Seraf, and Leah Holzer. Um, and, uh, and it was only after making contact with the estate, hearing from the estate that there will never, ever be a Mr. Rogers movie. Um, uh, that that we ended up sort of trying to wait them out, being patient, um, ask, uh, begging, cajoling, doing everything we could to get the, um, the the gatekeepers of the Fred Rogers estate to to agree to let us into the archive. We had read Tom's amazing uh, article, uh, his profile of Fred before, but it wasn't until we saw that box, the Tom Juno box, that we knew we had a movie. Can I ask these guys a question? Yeah. So, so when did you when did you come up with the idea of Fred talking to the audience and of Fred making and and of making this an episode of of Fred's show? Because you told me that when you first called me, you said that this is how you wanted to do it. So obviously, you already had that going. But it, it when you see the movie now, it, it's I mean, it is the thing that enables the movie to do so much. It is, it is what slows it down, is what establishes Tom Hanks' authority right from the start. And I'm, uh, I'm always amazed by it. And I'm just curious as to when that like, light bulb went above your heads. Yeah, I think the first thing we did is we, we pitched a version of this to our manager, Alex Lerner. And, um, and he said, yeah, that's, that's a, really good, it's a really good movie. But it's really safe and it feels a little bit like a Lifetime movie. And uh, and we drove across town, uh, back back to the east side, 
kind of fuming, being like, oh man, this isn't going to work. This isn't. And, and on that car ride, we kind of had this idea of, well, how would we mess it up? He's right. It's straightforward. We're not really straightforward guys. Uh, how would we mess it up? How would we, you know, play with the format? And by the time we'd gotten across town, we had this, this notion. And um, it's funny, like in going back to the draft now, uh, the, the, first, the first draft we wrote, um, the scene that's in the movie is uh, almost exactly the same as the very first draft, uh, where Fred comes out on the show and you know, welcomes the audience. And some, some, some things have changed word here and word there, but I would say in the high 90th percentile is word for word the same. So what changed? Uh, well, you know, we things that changed were the name of the character, uh, Lloyd Vogel, um, but also uh, what the overall theme of the movie is, the thing that that character, is, the journalist, is wrestling with. So it took us a while. We wrestled with what, what it was. And I think, um, like, we were saying forgiveness at one point. You know, was it like to forgive somebody? You know, and then we ended up coming back to that. Right. You know, anger was something that came up. So we had, like, different versions. And we had, you know, different directors as well along the way that uh, different versions of what this character was struggling with. But aside from that moment, have you ever felt like Lloyd does? Right. You know, when he says that, right. like, that, those right. lines, that little paragraph was the only thing that really changed. Okay, my very last and super, super Gen X question. Uh, did you talk to Mr. Rogers about the sniper urban myth? And if so, <laughs> what did he think of it? Well, I knew that the, that the sniper urban myth was not true because I saw him naked. I, I, I went swimming with him, or I watched him swim one morning. You know, he, um, he swam a mile every single morning of his life. And we went to the locker room afterwards, and there was Fred, you know, naked as a jaybird, as the saying goes. And so I, I knew right then, I didn't have to ask uh, whether his arms were lined with, with tattoos. With Killmonger-style tattoos. Right, exactly. All of his kills, of his kills. yeah. <laughs> we actually did find where that rumor came from. Really? Yeah, so there was, a, there was actually a guy named Fred Rogers who, started a, who was a Marine, who was a sharpshooter, <laughs> who, um, who started a security business. And he, he, for a moment, put up fredrogers.com as his business. Uh -huh. And it was wow. almost immediately taken down, but people found that, and and so that's obviously your next movie is the other Fred Rogers. <laughs> uh, we're going to pretend that's not what we're writing right now. <laughs> okay, so there you have it. I uh, hope you enjoyed those interviews with Daniel Kaluuya, Micah Fitzerman Blue, Noah Harpster, and Tom Juno. If you did enjoy it, please give us five stars on iTunes. Please subscribe wherever you like to subscribe. And you know, maybe subscribe to Movie Maker Magazine. Totally independent movie magazine. No weird corporate intervention or anything like that. And definitely, definitely check out MovieMaker.com where we have lots of articles about Queen and Slim and A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood and a lot of other films that you will probably really like. Uh, thanks also to the SCAD Savannah Film Festival where I conducted all these interviews. They were totally awesome in setting all of this stuff up, and I really, really appreciate it. And finally, person, I really appreciate you. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of this, and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you. Thank you.